Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. This podcast is sponsored by SmartStream. Trust your data. Accelerate your future potential. More at smartstream-stp.com. In this podcast, this is the second installment of our Hall of Fame series, where we feature three of our eight 2021 inductees. These distinguished individuals were honored at our annual Boca Conference, and we thank them for their contributions to our industry. Well, welcome to FIA Boca 2021, and we're thrilled and honored to talk to one of our Hall of Fame inductees, Gay Huey Evans, who is joining us and to to reflect on her many achievements in our industry. Welcome, Gay, and congratulations on your induction into the Futures Industry Hall of Fame. Thank you, Walt, and I'm very pleased to accept this wonderful nomination. And um, no, I was thrilled. So thank you very, very much. And I'm sorry we're not in Boca Raton right now. I've been up in the Northeast where it's a bit cold and windy and a uh, you know, respite to uh, sunny Florida would have been great. But next year. <laughs> uh, next year. That's right. So we'll we'll invite you back next year uh, so that we can honor you in person as well. But I wanted to start, I mean, it's such an interesting career you've had and continue to have. Uh, but let's talk a bit about your start in our industry and the impact into the of this industry. But how did you get your start into our world? Mm. Well, it's a long, when you've spent as much time working, it's a lot. I could go through a lot of my career, but most of it's been involved with financial institutions and capital markets. And that's how I started. I'm a fixed income department in at Payne Weber in the early in the mid 1970s actually so i would say financial park markets have been part of my life for such a very long time and then once i was at bankers trust and starting in 1984 where it was the capital market side which was part of corporate finance at that time which people would could barely believe today um, it, w- it was derivatives it was all about understanding risks and we everybody understood credit risk with regard to loans, but not with credit risk with regard to counterparty risks regarding derivative transactions. So I, that's where we became, you know, we did everything at the time. You traded, you hedged, and you basically looked at the credit risk and the market risk of what you were holding. So that was my early days. And then in 1998, I moved to what would say the other side uh, to focus on regulation, uh, which is where I used, is what I learned as a practitioner. Uh, to create effective policy, which I thought was effective policy for markets. Um, you had to think much longer about what you did it, the impact it would have on markets. But I, it was a very natural shift in terms of focus and perspective, which I totally loved. Um, and then in the meantime, you know, one of my aspects of my role at the Financial Services Authority was the oversight of the London exchanges. And that included the LME. So last year or 2019, I guess now, 
um, I became the chairman of the London Metal Exchange. And that was another natural shift. Uh, my inspiration to be part of that industry probably lies in my belief that commodities industry and the financial markets have the power to transform things. And it's a critical juncture right now as we focus on the transitioning to a sustainable global economy. And as we know, the commodity companies, mining or energy, have the power to keep economies and communities afloat. And harnessing the current technology that we have today or what's going to come out tomorrow and having everybody work together can also achieve this collective sustainable goals that we need to achieve for the years forward to meet our 2050 or 2030 or 2040, you know, goals for sustainability. So that's one aspect. Um, throughout my career, I have um, been fascinated by what it means to have, and as you have done it yourself, uh, a fit and proper market. You know, what one is that is accessible, but transparent. And one is that not open to manipulation. Markets that can be trusted. I feel extremely strongly about that. And trust is ex exceptionally important in a market like the London Metal Exchange and the metals communities we serve, where the physical and the financial communities coexist. Because without this trust, this mutual dependency, you know, it would, it would, it would be the wrong prices for the end user at the end of the day. That's the consumer. So we have to think about that. So I have felt... You know, these are some of the things that kind of started me in the industry and how I really got started. Well, you, I think you said it right, fit and proper regulation, um, whether you're running markets or uh, overseeing markets as a regulator, you've done both. And I, I find it fascinating. And if you can't tell by uh, Gay's accent, um, she doesn't have a British accent. So I'm just curious how you got on the radar um, you know, of the FSA at the time to become its regulator. And I'm just curious how that connection was made in your career. Um, interesting, it was through my ISDA role where I met you, Walt, That's back right. in the 90s, which I hate to tell you, you know, when that seemed, seemed like yesterday, uh, I was chairing ISDA for a period of time while I was working at Bankers Trust. But that got me into speaking to policymakers legislators, regulators, all types of individuals, which I had never done previously. And being in the UK where I was working at the time, I had had the opportunity to meet Howard Davis, who happened to be at that time deputy governor of the Bank of England. And he was speaking at one of our conferences, as one does. And so when the Labour government came into power in 90, 97, 98, uh, they determined to put together a single regulator. and. Howard was asked in charge to do that. I happened to be at a Federal Reserve Atlanta conference speaking, as was Howard, and I spent two hours telling him why I was not a regulator, not a compliance individual. I was a transactor, as a financial institution, financial markets individual. And he said, that's what I want and that's what I need. So that's how I made that transition into from a market practitioner to a market regulator. And it was fascinating. And I had, you know, I comprised people from the Bank of England, this, the old SIB, which was the Securities Investment Board, the SFA, which was the self-regulated entity. So it was a wonderful time to be part of a new regulator and to grow a market, particularly when the EU was taking place. 
And it's interesting, I think, when we talked, um, you know, both the ISDA days and the FSA days, um, the, 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 the futures law in the United States was patterned off what the FSA had done with developing a principles-based regulatory structure. So whether you know it or not, a lot of the work you did impacted how the United States would approach regulation from 2000 on. Um, I did want to ask, I mean, no one, no one succeeds on their own. There's always individuals that are helping and, and supporting and mentoring and, and all those things that help us develop our careers. Looking back at your career, was there an individual or individuals that helped, helped to nurture your career as it, as it moved forward? I would love to say yes, but I can't say that. Um, Having been around a long time, there were no such thing as role models or mentors. Maybe they're role models, but there weren't any role models for women uh, when I started working. Uh, there were very few women in positions of seniority. Um, and most of the women, there were very few women on trading floors. So, and then the concept of having mentors was really rare. So you you really didn't have people to talk to about what was happening. You just had to work hard. I mean, the inspiration came from within. You know, you want to keep going. You want to do the best you possibly can. And that's probably what drove me in my early days. Um, over the past maybe almost 20 plus years, 20 or maybe 30 years, I had the opportunity to meet Janet Yellen, the current you know, United States Treasury Secretary, um, and the first woman in that role, which we're all pleased about. Um, but so what, she's a woman I looked up to when I first met her in the 90s when I was chairing ISDA. Um, she was always interested in what was happening in markets being an economist. She, but she was knowledgeable about what she knew about. She was always thoughtful to people. Uh, I found her easy to talk to, engaged. She always had a twinkle in her eye. Um, and I look at and I see how she's achieved her success without stepping on people, over people, but through trust, dedication, hard work, doing the right thing. And I think that's truly inspiring. And she's found time for people, it seems. I mean, I have an example when, as a real, I mean, finding time for people is a real mark of character and not just throwing you out of their office after you've spoken them for 10 minutes. I happened to be in San Francisco. It's a, one of my memories um, during the financial crash in 2008. And I had a meeting with her when she was the president and chief executive of the Federal Reserve San Francisco. And she didn't cancel it. Um, interestingly, I mean, you thought this was a day of crisis for her, for Janet and her team. And she didn't cancel the meeting and she made time. And she made time for me and asked me what I thought and engaged with her. And so from that day on, you know, I put her at the top of my list of somebody to admire. And every time she gets a different role, I continue to send her a note, which she charmingly responds to directly. It's funny you mentioned Janet Yellen. I, uh, as a Senate staffer, had to recommend her to Senator Luger, who I worked for at the time, to be confirmed. And we certainly voted affirmatively to confirm her as a Federal Reserve governor. Um, but ultimately, when she was running the, the Fed in San Francisco, as you noted, uh, I was acting chairman and I went to visit her about the same time you did. And she did the exact same thing and talked to me about markets and how crude oil was priced 
at $140 and that economics were behind that. And she understands how markets work. And like you said, even more than that, made time for a young acting chairman like me to give me advice and and to, to, to just spend time with me, which I found fascinating. So I understand uh, why you made her out to be a, a role model. She's a role model to me as well. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit. Oh, go ahead. Yellen Club. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. We're the big fans. Yep. Um, well, there's lots of different achievements throughout your career that uh, are notable. But as you look back on your time in the, in the 20 plus years that you've been in our industry, you know, tell us a little bit of those things that stand out that you may be most proud of. And if there's even ones that are, are challenges that you overcame, we'd be interested in that. That's a hard one. I mean, there's so many moments I, I, I've found in my career that I am very proud of. Um, and yeah, I think it, what chairing ISDA at a time it was going through self-regulation into should it be regulated, it was going through a time of a corporate finance transaction that was being traded to being multiples of billions into trillions and that volume growth, keeping a community together that was global. Um, I'm proud of that. I met wonderful people like yourself and everybody else that some of what we've mentioned already. That was a real achievement in my life. I mean, I obviously have great relationships with old clients. And I guess currently my most recent proud achievement was being to be chairman of the London Metal Exchange. And being chairman right now, I'm in the middle of a major transformational time at the London Metal Exchange where huge technology infrastructure rebuild alongside an ambitious, sustainable program that we have for the markets. And also we are We've got an initiative in respect of diversity and inclusion agenda, which is quite inspiring. And uh, so if I, you know, in, you know, the concept of technology, well, we're always doing that. All of us have to be doing that all the time. So I, I'll, I'll kind of set that aside. But sustainability is an area where the London Metal Exchange has really thrown down the gauntlet um, with its responsible sourcing work. And I'm really proud of what's been achieved and what we will continue to achieve. Uh, what we will do is um, you know, we've created something called an LME Passport, which is going to be launched this summer. And it'll create a centralized digital register for metals. So this, their sustainability credentials. And then this will allow the industry participants to view the industrial, these individual credentials of whether it's aluminum and, you know, so we started with, but it'll be something else later. And so, you know, to, so they know how this metal was created with the CO2 and everything else that's stamped on it. And all this is done on a voluntary basis. Initially, we had a bit of pushback, uh, but now people are gravitating to it and quite excited about it. And I'm hoping we can push that further sooner rather than later. And that, you know, that's designed to increase tra- you know, tech transparency again. And we'll utilize the power of technology again to facilitate this achievement of our sustainable goal that we have. Now, on the other side of it is diversity and, and um, inclusion. And it's always been a very strong part of my, I guess, of what drives me. Because having been a single voice many times of my life, whether it was being the female at the table or not, it, um, it could get a bit lonely. And so I believe we have established a diversity and inclusion forum 
uh, which basically creates networks. And I think everybody's doing this, but it builds broad support for all different people and for diverse sharing experiences. And that's essential. And, you know, the the, uh, LME was received what they call the Stonewall Champion because we have a huge LGBTQ plus network that we spend a lot of time on. And that's, that's the power again of an inclusive agenda. So, and then we've developed a lot of uh, development mentoring programs internally, and that's to help all, all, all people. It's not just gender, it's across the board. And one of my other favorite things that I've done recently and I'm proud of within the London Metal Exchange is that we've launched an apprenticeship apprenticeship program. Um, and that's to take, um, and we've strongly encouraged applications from underrepresented groups. And that was in terms of gender or in terms of background, in terms of ethnicity, all across the board. And the overall aim is to add more diversity into this commodities world um, within starting them with the you know, putting them into the LME pipeline and then being able to disperse them out to others, you know, in terms of understanding the commodities and the markets world. So, and I know every company is doing that, but I'm super proud of our company that being, you know, ahead of it and pushing it at this time, particularly during COVID. Well, you were certainly a vanguard during your time. Um, Like you said, you didn't have many role models or mentors um, to help with your career. But it's wonderful to hear that you're building a networking, uh, a network uh, of people that can can connect with each other, can support each other. And, and so, I, you know, so in our final question here, you know, if you were addressing those individuals that those those people that we're trying to get into our, our industry uh, to provide an on ramp um, into financial services, what, what advice would you give a young person who's just starting their career in our industry? A simplistic approach first. Just work hard and know your subject matter. That allows you a seat at the table and allows you to ask all the difficult questions or even the easy questions. I find that's, that will hold you in good stead for the rest of your life. I think secondly, you know, we're building relationships. The idea of networking internally and externally is important. And it's easy to get so busy and caught up with your lives that you don't have enough time to do it. And even now, during this interesting year we've gone through, some of us forget to do that. And guess what? That gives us inspiration and knowledge. I would encourage that at all times. Um, I guess the other one is take time for yourself. We don't have enough time, usually, in the days. And we need to find time. And that wasn't something that was encouraged back when I started working. At least now, everybody talks about taking exercise and the well-being and mindfulness issues. Those are important. But just getting to know yourself. And I hate to say, you know, as a female, draw the female card. But sadly, women are still doing the bulk of the work around the household. So whether you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a sister, you're a daughter, whatever it may be. And we've seen that happen with how many women have fallen out of the workforce, which is a tragedy. But it happens because the the you know the demands upon their life, this emotional toll that's taken, let alone physical toll that's been taken. So when you, I think finding time for yourself 
is still important. Finding out who you are, what drives you, what motivates you, and those will hold you in good stead. And that'll make you much more peaceful individual. So those are some of the things I would say, really find a passion, be curious, stay curious in life. Take time to think about what you want to know, let alone about your subject matter or yourself. And then don't be afraid to take the risks that are presented to you. Those are probably some basic, basic elements that I think are important in life. Well, Gay, it clearly shows your wisdom. Um, you know, those are all things that... Um, you know, I would I would consider uh, wise words for the next generation too. So um, they resonated with me. So thank you so much for for joining us today, and congratulations on being a part of this year's 2021 Futures Industry Hall of Fame. You're certainly well deserved to be a member of of that, and we look forward to seeing you uh, in person next year at our Boca Conference as well. Thank you all. I so too look forward to being part of it and to seeing you and seeing you again. It's been a bit a long, long time and sharing the stage with my fellow winners and those who are going to be who've preceded me or are coming after me. I'm very proud to accept this wonderful award. Thank you. Our next inductee is former FIA board chair and longtime city executive Jerome Kemp. Jerome recently retired from city but like most people who leave companies, we are sure that Jerome will continue to play an active role in our industry. Um, Jerome, how did you get into our industry and are there any role models that you looked up to uh, when starting your career? Yeah, how did I get into to, to, to this uh, industry? Well, it's a very interesting uh, question. Um, primarily, um, it was because I needed a job and I needed to make some money. Uh, Bettina and I had just had our first child. Uh, I had been uh, working in various consulting roles here in Paris uh, uh, in the area of um, infrastructure development uh, in the developing in developing in the developing world, uh, and that was just too hand to mouth. Um, so I sat down with myself one day and said, "What else can I do?" And I said, "Well, I've got a, a master's in, in, in economics." Uh, I'm pretty good with numbers. Let's see what happens if I uh, look at markets. And uh, I was hired by a company called Odo and Company, which is still around today, uh, as a bond trader on the floor of the uh, of the exchange uh, in Paris. Uh, the OAT market was uh, was an was an outcry market. It uh, it uh, uh, fixed prices twice a day. There was a morning session from uh, nine to eleven, and uh, an afternoon session from one to three. Prices were written with a piece of chalk on a blackboard, and uh, in between that, we uh, we we uh, traded our bonds. That's how I got started, and uh, one thing led to another, from bond trading to uh, futures. Uh, the Matif was uh, really developing at the time. Uh, I then moved on to uh, a, a bigger role with J.P. Morgan, where I spent 18 years, ultimately uh, running that uh, global business with Peter Johnson, uh, and then moving to City uh, in 2011 to. Uh, uh, take charge of the global uh, futures OTC clearing and uh, ultimately the FXPB business there as well. So it's been a, a very exciting run over the past uh, 30 some odd years. Um, you asked me an interesting question about role models and uh, it's an interesting one. As Since I've retired, um, I've actually been reaching out to the people who really uh, touched me in, in my career and my, myself uh, in, in a meaningful way that helped me along, that gave me opportunities 
that gave me insights that uh, opened my mind to the possibilities. And there, there were there are a number of them. Um, some of them who you know. Um, uh, the first uh, name that comes to mind is Richard Broyan, with whom I worked with uh, very, very closely, who's a very good friend of mine uh, today. Also from the JP Morgan days, uh, I would also have to add uh, David Pride, who was the global head of the business. Uh, it was David who tapped me on the shoulder to uh, move out to uh, Tokyo, uh, where I spent uh, a considerable amount of time running the Asia business. Uh, that happened during the JP Morgan Chase uh, merger, which was a fascinating time to be running a big futures business out there. I added uh, uh, India as a market, uh, Malaysia as a market, um, uh, China as a market uh, while, uh, while I was out there. At City, I would uh, mention the name of Jim O'Donnell, the person who, uh, uh, who was up until very recently uh, the head of uh, global sales for the investment bank. He brought me into City. He's now, he was just named head of the, uh, uh, the, the, the private bank there. But uh, Jim uh, was an incredible uh, mentor and advocate uh, for the, the task that I was uh, hired to do at City, which is essentially to reinvent their, their futures and uh, put them on the map in, in terms of uh, clearing. And I've got to say, Walt, that you know, without having those mentors, and I think it's a general rule in life for everyone, if you don't have your mentors, sort of your go-to people, and uh, uh, it's, it, it's very difficult, I think, to sort of navigate the, the complexity uh, uh, of a career. And I would probably say, in, you know, in any, in any uh, in any given industry, but those mentors, uh, you know, helped uh, guide me, helped train me, helped uh, me to uh, sort of find my way through this incredible career that I've had over the past uh, thirty years or so. Well, those mentors are mentors are members of the Futures Industry Hall of Fame too, so they clearly had influence not only on a, a generation of of other people, but also on our industry in general. So I can understand why you looked up to Richard and David and others. Yeah. Um, well, looking back over your career, what are you most proud of? And what would you sort of point out as one of your bigger achievements as you look back? I think, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a complex question. I'll start with the latter part first. I think my the thing I'm most proud of, or the part of my career that I'm most proud of, is uh, what we achieved at City um, for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, I grew up at J.P. Morgan, uh, and uh, having left there to join City after close to 19 years was a big step. And the big question was, you know, can I do this um, without that incredible sort of family that I had around me? Um, and um, all said, I think we did pretty well at City. Um, City emerged as one of the, the major, um, uh, the major uh, FCMs globally uh, during the time that I was leading that business. Uh, we led the OTC market, I think they still do. Uh, we made incredible strides in, in futures and we became a reference name in the industry and I'm very, very proud of that. I think the, you know, responding to the first part of that question, I guess, you know, what, um, what, uh, sorry, First, the second part was. Uh, what do you consider your biggest achievement and what are you most proud of? Were the two. Right, so most proud of what we did at City. My biggest achievement, I think, is just, I don't know if you'd call it an achievement. It is this incredible network of uh, really friends uh, that I've, that we've all been able to uh, construct uh, over the years. I think it's one of the, the most incredible things about this industry in particular is that, and, and Walt, I think you, 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 are, you are probably very sensitive to, to this as well, is that this futures industry 
has worked so incredibly well together over the years. And uh, I think we've really, you know, formed bonds uh, uh, within, you know, our, our, our respective companies, but also, and even more incredibly across the industry uh, to, you know, drive a common agenda together. And, and for me, that is just, uh, you know, incredible. I, I, I gotta say, I haven't seen it really anyone else. When I talk about my experience in, in the futures industry, you know, I'll talk about, you know, working with Najib at HSBC or, or, um, or Mike Dolly at Goldman Sachs. I mean, and we've got stories together as if we almost worked together over the years, which in fact we did via the, under the auspices of FIA. Um, so it's this incredible feeling of belonging to a community, uh, which is the, the global futures industry, uh, which I don't know if you'd call that an achievement, but it certainly is something that uh, very much influenced the way uh, that uh, I went about, you know, sort of doing my job, but also I think what, you know, kept me in the industry for as long as I, uh, I, I was. I feel exactly the same way. And I, I think that's why it's so hard to skip Boca in the in-person event, because it feels like oh. a family reunion. You know, when you go there, you see everybody. And I know Richard Burlian always goes down there and, and sees his old JP Morgan folks and you and and others and so uh, you're right it does feel like a family a close-knit family our industry yeah. Yeah. So, well the final question um you know as now you're at the 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 end of your career for somebody starting their career what advice would you give a young person starting out in our industry i would say first of all um walt that careers don't really end uh you close a chapter and you open a new one um, so I would say to anyone who is starting off, who is just out of school and is uh, looking for their first job or especially they're in their first job, is that, um, you know, this is a first step. It's not your, your first job will certainly not be the job you'll have for the rest of your life. And most likely the job you have now will perhaps have very little resemblance to the job you ultimately decide to, you know, retire from. Um, I think if anything, um, the one thing that uh, I benefited from the most over my career, and the one thing that I would say to anyone starting off today would be to you know, make sure that you focus on building your network. Um, that's been a theme that we've been discussing during this uh, conversation is that without your mentors, without your peers, without your colleagues, um, and certainly without your clients and the broader sort of ecosystem within which you, you operate, you're really not going to, I would say, do very well. So, you know, build your relationships. Uh, uh, building your relationships is as important as becoming the subject matter, subject matter, matter, matter expert. I'll say that again. Building your relationships is as important as becoming a subject matter expert that you'll need to become in order to do your job, you know, efficiently and successfully. Uh, without that, um, I think it's gonna, it would be very, very, very difficult. Um, for me, you know, I think, um, you know, never be afraid to, you know, do things that you've never done before uh, as well. Uh, venture off into uh, places that you thought you'd never go to. I can tell you that um, when I got the, that, that call from David Pride uh, on a summer evening in 1997, I think it was, Jerome, how would you like to move to Tokyo and take over the Asia business? I was absolutely gobsmacked. Um, and, uh, you know, my first question is, uh, can I do this? Can I do this? Why can't I do this? Uh, Will my family, you know, be okay with this? Eventually they were. Uh, and, you know, taking that sort of leap of faith into the unknown um, was probably one of the biggest catalysts of my career. 
uh, and doing that uh, with, uh, you know, with, with trusted colleagues and mentors, uh, you know, again, made all that difference. Well, that's a great way to end our interview. So um, I, I think everybody's had, the, we'll edit this out, but everybody's had those moments where somebody has trusted them to do something. Yeah. Um, and I remember in my career, this will be edited out obviously, but um, you know, Senator Luger came to me and said, I want you to be a CFTC commissioner. And I was like, I can't do that. I mean, what are you talking about? You know, and, but they saw something that in you and um, David Pride saw that in you and um, you know, it made a difference in her career. It just completely changed the course of my life. So, and your life. Well, you know, the, the same questions, you know, came up uh, when I was, uh, you know, offered the job, the global job at, at City. I was like, can I do this? You know, I won't have Richard, I won't have Peter. I mean, it's going to be me by myself. Can I really do this? But you're right, they saw something in me. Uh, they helped me see something in me. Uh, and uh, that uh, changed everything. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I just, thank you. you know, it's so, so wonderful to have worked with you over the years and you're so deserving of, of this recognition. Um, thank you. Well, welcome Jeff Gelderman to the Futures Industry Hall of Fame class of 2021. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I appreciate it. It's a, an honor to be here and uh, totally unexpected, so. Well, I think for anybody who knows your career, um, you certainly are well-deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. And I wanted this, uh, you know, you have a rich background of, of helping to provide IT services and, and, and different, uh, you know, ways that people can access and risk manage in our markets. But give us a, a bit before we get into any of that, give us a bit of your background of how you entered into our industry and where you began. Well, I was in college at the time, uh, 19, about 68. My dad uh, uh, had a brokerage firm, John T. Gelderman and his company, and uh, he was tired of his bookkeeping services. Uh, so he was off learning Fortran programming and he was going to write his own back office system at the time. Uh, he didn't know what he was in for, I don't think, but uh, he, uh, he started off and then he found a partner in Arthur Grady, uh, who was with the Chicago Tabulating Service back in those days. Uh, and uh, they started uh, CIS, Computer Information Services. And uh, uh, in my college days, uh, I was in the co-op program in engineering and I uh, was pretty interested in computer science stuff. And uh, I kind of went back in those days and asked my father if I could co-op at his company. And uh, that's how it started in April of 1970. So uh, I started in there kind of, uh, there were only four or five employees and we uh, got off the ground. Uh, they were off the ground already from 68 uh, through 70, but I joined at that time. And, uh, you know, I just kind of learned the business uh, from the ground up in the, in the back office side of it. Uh, I had worked down on the trading floor in summers uh, as a high school kid. And, uh, you know, kind of knew my way around the board of trade. Hadn't been to the Merck much, but uh, that was, uh, you know, kind of where I started into this. And, you know, the history of the Gelderman family and uh, futures goes back to the Depression days with my grandfather. So, uh, you know, it was in our blood. And I think uh, all my brothers and sisters were in the business uh, uh, some way or another, uh, you know, as they came out of college and got uh, into jobs. So uh, I was in the computer business, though. But uh, that's kind of where I started. Uh, it it kind of grew from there. Uh, it, you know, if we want to get into history a little bit, uh, you know, the first thing I did because I didn't know anything, you know, about the back office systems, uh, so I had to learn that in 1970. So uh, uh, 
Art O'Grady started me off and uh, gave me a task to go implement uh, a clearing system, a trade matching and clearing system for the Chicago Open Board of Trade back in those days. And uh, 70, late 70, early 71, that's when I did that. It's like I had nothing else to do pretty much. They didn't want to turn me loose on the software programs at the time. So, uh, so I put together some programs and went over and took the Mid-America or well, what became the Mid-America Commodity Exchange uh, and uh, computerized the whole thing. So uh, that was kind of the start of clearing uh, knowledge and, and from the, from the uh, exchange side for me. Uh, the bookkeeping side, we just kind of continued on. It was a service bureau operation. And, uh, you know, we had the majority of LaSalle Street eventually was on our systems. Uh, it was kind of a nice place to be in those days with a nice group of people. Well, the, the GMI systems are still utilized by. Well, this, that wasn't even GMI. Yeah, that wasn't even GMI. <laughs> that was that was the precursor. That was how I really got hooked on this stuff. Uh, 1973 or 72 and 73, because uh, uh, of one of uh, you know uh, an old affiliation of my father's. Uh, we got uh, O'Grady and I were uh, uh, asked to look at the the specs on the uh, clearing system for the CBOE that uh, the Board of Trade was uh, hatching in those days. And uh, we got, uh, we, I think it was because of the, they wanted just a validation of the pricing uh, that was being charged to build that system. And we kind of laughed at it because I, I built this little clearing system. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we did it. And uh, for the mid the open board of trade. And uh, so we, uh, we told them we thought the price was too high. They came back and asked us, well, what do you think it, you know, what will you guys charge to do it? Because <laughs> they knew we had done this other little clearing and matching system. So, uh, we actually wrote the first call option on the CBOE. We uh, told them we'd do it for free, and uh, but we'd own it and we'd run it for the exchange for the first couple of years. And uh, that's how we got, you know, that's what I did. I, I sat there single-handedly and wrote all of that software for trade matching and clearing for uh, what CBOE clearing called at the time. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, we had a lot of things going on in those days in the 70s and 80s uh, with bookkeeping services. Uh, we were growing and uh, it just kind of that's that's what we were about. It was a it was a fun business uh, with a lot of nice people, as I say. So uh, that business got sold in 1983 to ADP. Uh, and uh, I stayed around for a couple of months. Uh, didn't like working for large companies and walked off in about uh, end of August and September and started uh, GMI at that time, 1983, we started that in the fall. And uh, myself and Bob Murtaugh, my partner. So uh, we had two employees, uh, a lot of people in the industry know them, uh, Gene Hicks and uh, Tim uh, uh, Rast. Uh, the four of us really put to, started putting together the software in those days. Uh, uh, we started for about three or four years, but uh, and we started building little subsystems that, to interface with the service bureau systems, uh, you know, letting firms get their own little system 36 mini computer in there, uh, put it in the house and start doing their own, uh, keeping their own account databases. And did, we then went into trade entry processing and uh, took over the key punching functions and moved them onto screens in those days. Uh, I think we were the first ones to do that. Uh, and then uh, as, as we, we charged for all those little systems and uh, that, uh, that gave us a little bit of revenue, uh, helped the starving a little bit and, uh, uh, eventually, we had the system built. We, I think, about 1986, we actually put the first customers on. Uh, it was, I think, Gerald Commodities was one of the first ones uh, in those days. But uh, so that that kind of just we just kind of kept going from there. Uh, uh, what 
growing the business. Uh, we had some really key things happen during the, the late, uh, late 80s. Uh, we had JP Morgan as a customer here in the US and they, uh, they kind of approached us to go do something for their Paris office. And I went with uh, Jim Halliday from uh, JP Morgan over to Paris and we sat down with their people over there and figured out what we had to do to kind of internationalize the GMI system as it existed in those days. Uh, started getting into the needs and requirements for multi-currency because you know everything had been U.S. dollars, U.S. commodities, and that was it. Uh, so it was a uh, it was kind of a challenging thing, and you know they were a very good customer, and we had a great great relationship. Uh, uh, same thing happened. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, kind of kicked us forward a little bit with uh, the whole idea of integrating products, uh, stocks, bonds, options, uh, futures, all of that, currencies. Uh, they were looking for a system that would put everything on one statement for the customer. Uh, so that, you know, we had, we had relationships that were very uh, strong and very, uh, very good. And they, they helped us to actually develop, uh, you know, they didn't do any development, but, but our listening and, and implementing uh, you know, skills were, uh, were kind of what made it all come about, so. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned your father. Um, so John Gelderman is a member of the Futures Industry Hall of Fame and was chairman of the CME for a period of time in the 70s. And uh, the Gelderman family, yeah, Gelderman family is well known and uh, it's almost like the Kennedy family of American politics. I mean, it's very well known in the futures industry. But as you look back on your career, are there mentors or role models that you that stood out for you in helping develop your, your career going forward? Well, I think, uh, I, I, my father, for one, I mean, you know, just, you know, the respect I had for him and uh, uh, just kind of the way he uh, went to work every day and came home every day. <laughs> it, was, uh, uh, it was kind of a, a good example, uh, and it was an industry that I enjoyed. Uh, uh, I tell people these days, I don't think I've ever worked in a job that I thought was a job. It's, you know, it was just what I did, and, you know, it was... Uh, it's been that way from the days at CIS through GMI and through my, my most recent uh, 23 years. <laughs> so, uh, but no, yeah. And, and, you know, you got to remember that the computer industry in those days was, you know, boy, it was, it was dinosaurs. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the board of trade in 1963 had converted to, uh, you know, computerized, you know, or some kind of punch card trade matching. And, uh, you know, the, it wasn't really advanced. The mini, the, the PCs didn't come along until much later. You know, so it was uh, those days, the seventies, the eighties, were uh, you know, there wasn't many people to look up to. Let's put it that way from the technology standpoint. Uh, you know, IBM was one. I guess I, you know, that uh, people that I knew at IBM because we've been with IBM for all those years. Uh, you know, they were. It was always a great place to work, and that's what I kind of wanted to make. Uh, I always wanted GMI to be that. We took care of people. And, grew with people and the relationships, so. In, in, in looking back, um, are there certain milestones or achievements that you would point to as, as that you're most proud of throughout your career? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, all the things that I did that, you know, the bookkeeping was the bookkeeping, I think. And, you know, the other things like, uh, you know, getting involved with clearing processing and stuff like that. Now, it wasn't really in the futures industry uh, all that time. I mean, that was options with CDOE, you know, being part of the thing of the CBOE was kind of a, a real milestone in my mind. Uh, sitting there opening day with uh, you know, the likes of Wayne Lutheranhausen and, you know, and all the other exchange people sitting around watching us try to match the trades and make sure that the exchange was going to open correctly. That was a kind of a, a memorable, uh, memorable day. 
uh, you know, from all that, uh, it, you know, from doing that at CIS, we moved into building, uh, making variations on our clearing systems for, uh, for Comex, for uh, cotton, you know, the cotton exchange, the coffee sugar exchange. Uh, we converted all those exchanges out in New York. We ran all those businesses uh, you know, for many years. Uh, so it's part of the future side, you know, the, the GMI system. Uh, you know, when people look at it today, uh, you know, that you don't relate it to clearing, but that was, that was for me, that was a lot of the fun was, was doing some of those things as well. Uh, yeah, getting, you know, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, uh, that, that clearing stuff, you know, we did all that at CIS. And then when we started GMI, you know, we weren't looking for anything. We were just building our systems and starving to death, as I said. And uh, <laughs> late, uh, late 80s, the other thing that came along was uh, OCC, you know, Options Clearing Corp came back to us because they knew they were bidding on the Toronto Stock Exchange's uh, TCO uh, clearing system when options were going to start trading in Canada. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, they, were, they had mainframes at OCC, but uh, TCO was small. They, they came to us and said, can we make a new version of our old clearing system and the one we gave for them, that we built for them back in the 70s that I did, and uh, co-bid the, the TCO business with them. So the first thing, you know, that was, that was kind of a, uh, a nice moment uh, to get recognized uh, by OCC and, uh, and, and be able to go implement, we implemented and designed and built the system on an IS series AS400 IBM computer because it was small enough to do the port for the exchange. From there, grew into other situations with OCC. They started, uh, they marketed not only the, after the options in Canada, they marketed uh, the, the Borsa in Italy. Uh, so we were over doing work in Italy and Milan, implementing you know, the whole trade match and clearing systems for them. Uh, we were putting in clearing systems for uh, Hong Kong Futures Exchange. We actually did that one after the crash in 88, uh, or 87 it was. <laughs> uh, you know, we got called in over there by one of the old ex-OCC people who was, you know, uh, chief executive of the Hong Kong Futures Exchange and put systems in there. Uh, so GMI did all of that work, uh, kind of stuff that the futures merchants never saw, uh, but it was fun and kind of gave us a worldwide reputation and got us into a lot of global products. So. Uh, the Hong Kong uh, initiative with OCC actually caused us to open a Hong Kong business and set it up for GMI and start converting firms to bookkeeping over there too. So uh, we did the same thing in Singapore. We did the same thing in Sydney, Australia, and uh, had a partnership with First Chicago Futures uh, in London that they were licensed to use our software over there. Uh, that that effort eventually, you know, turned out to be more of a distraction for them than anything else, and we took it over. Uh, eventually and ran it ourselves. So we, you know, the idea of getting global was one of probably another big milestone for us. Uh, uh, it was a little crazy because it meant staying up all night long or getting interrupted all night long, you know, with calls and supporting the software in all those places. But, you know, and when we started GMI, the, the concept was a little different than what had been in the service bureau world. Uh, we weren't running everything for the school, for the customers. Uh, they were they were running it themselves on their own computers and licensing the software from us. So it was kind of the first uh, software you know, licensing operation in the, in the industry, I think, of that type. So, and just uh, hearing, hearing your career, I mean, it's just a, it, it seems like it's a sequence of reinventing yourself a bit throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah. Hey, I'm just curious, you know, if you were going to give a young person some advice on how to approach, you know, entering our industry or how to stay resilient and, and to succeed. You know, what would you, what would you tell a young person coming out of college today? Well, 
depends on where they want to go. They want to go be a trader or they want to be a, a, a technology person. Uh, you know, it's some, yeah, one or the other, I'd say run for the hills, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great industry with a great group of people. And that's, that's probably the one thing that I think most people that I know enjoyed in this industry is what all the people that work for me at GMI really enjoyed this business uh, and, and enjoyed helping people. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if, if you're going to go into the technology side of this business, boy, you better get a, a great education to start with. But then uh, you got to keep up, you know, keeping up is the hardest thing. Uh, I know when we sold GMI in 1997 uh, to SunGuard, uh, it was, uh, I think I was, I was, I was really paranoid at that point. Uh, it wasn't that we wanted to dump the business or be out of the business, but they came to us with an offer we couldn't refuse. And and we looked at it, my Bob Merton and I looked at each other and said, you know, hey, you know, we got to find a lot more capital to get stay in this business these days. Computerized trading was just starting. Uh, basket trading had started back, you know, in those last couple of years of, after 95. Uh, the product mixes were going crazy. Uh, everybody was launching new products. Uh, keeping up is the hardest part of this industry. I mean, it really is. So. Well, Jeff, it's just a pleasure to, to talk to you. And it's I just want to say how honored I am to welcome you to the 2021 Futures Industry Hall of Fame. So thank you so much for being a part of our industry. And thanks for, for talking today. Well, I appreciate it. And as I say, it's an honor uh, to, to be invited to, jo to join the Hall of Fame. So. Thank you for listening to the second installment of our Hall of Fame podcast series. We encourage you to listen to the other two podcasts in this series. We thank SmartStream for their sponsorship, and we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.